Brought to you with some announcements before we get into this episode. ElixirConf EU 2020 is going hybrid. ElixirConf EU is taking place in London, England, or wherever you are for the virtual trek on the 9th and 10th of June, with training on the 6th through the 8th. For more information and to get your tickets, visit elixirconf.eu. Closure D will be held in Berlin on the 11th of June, 2022. Closure D is a closure conference with national and international speakers. Talks will cover big data processing, asynchronous and reactive programming, closure script, and many other topics. The conference will be held in English. Tickets are on sale now, including supported tickets to help Closure D reach and support a more diverse audience by offering a contingent of free tickets to people from groups traditionally underrepresented in the closure community and in the wider tech community. If your company would like to sponsor Closure D, they have new packages lined up for recruitment, marketing, and sponsorship. And Closure D is always happy to expand their network and grateful for support. Visit closured.de for more information and to register. Lambda Days 2022 has been pushed back until the 28th and 29th of July. Taking place in Krakow, Poland, and online, two Lambda Days tracks will be run as hybrid tracks, combining both an in-person and virtual experience. Lambda Ladies, Lambda Days wants you. For every Lambda Lady in your group, everyone gets 10% off the price, up to 50% off the entire order. Visit lambdadays.org to register and to find out more. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Eris Proctor, and this week with us we have Renzo Borgatti. Renzo, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, Stephen. Big fan of the podcast. I've been listening to, I remember the very first few episodes. It was a long ago, though. So I'm very happy to be good to joining you today. So a little bit about myself. I've been doing software development starting in the early 2000s until today. Mostly never stopping. I started as a Java developer at the beginning. And then I started to understand that there was uh, something else beyond Java and uh, looking around for new things and getting interested by looking, you know, at articles, reading articles, listening to podcasts and so on. And yeah, I ended up changing my career, jumping into first moving to the US with the idea of doing Something very different, like I joined the research group at the Fermilab in, in Chicago to do development on their grid. They were like one of the largest grid at the point, and the grid was used for particle physics processing data about particle physics, of course. And 
then I wasn't exactly ready to do research in that way, or I didn't understand it very well. And the opportunity to be in the US also gave me different ideas. So I was able to you know, join a few meetups happening in Chicago, and I joined a company doing Ruby on Rails and also or some Objective-C for iPhone developments as well. So that was for another couple of two or three years. And then I had to move back to Europe because of my son, my first son. And I went back into Java for a little while, but still uh, kind of uh, maybe uh, curious to know more about other languages. And I started to learn about Clojure by uh, listening to Richiki and I heard many people have, have the, the same story to tell you. They learned about Clojure by watching the first three cheeky presentations on InfoQ. And that was my road as well, the way I got to learn about Clojure. And I got interested in that language because it was speaking about object orientation in a very critical way. And it was compelling, the kind of argument in favor or disfavor of object orientation. So I got a book. I started some, I think it was the cones, exercising with the cones, um, some side project. And after a while, I decided that was the direction I wanted to go. And I started investing all of my time, my side time at the point I was still doing Java development, my side time into learning Clojure and getting proficient enough so I could take a job in Clojure. I'm talking about 2012. So this is where I started to learn about people on uh, IRC <laughs> and the other resources about Clojure, both the Clojure programming book, the one by Stuart Holloway, the first edition, and started reading on commutes. And yeah, at some point, I got my breakthrough. I had a couple of false starts in terms of starting doing Clojure full-time in a commercial setting, but I was able to land my first Clojure job with an amazing team who brought my, at that point, fragile closure knowledge to a commercial production level. And from there, I never looked back. And I think I already set my, my goal at that point to, I want to stop trying to be full stack engineer, like knowing about every kind of language, every kind of framework, and concentrate on a single thing, but do that thing in the best possible way. And that was closure. And part of my little contribution to the community as being to write a book, talk about it at conferences, doing all sorts of evangelism to get people to know as much as possible about Clojure, understand why it's an amazing and productive language to develop in. And uh, yeah, here we are today, like talking about something related to Clojure as well. Clojure got on my radar probably pretty close to the same time. I think 2010, 2011, started seeing the hints of it with some groups up in Chicago when I went up there for a conference. But ever since I've been in, Reborg being your Twitter handle for anybody who doesn't recognize your full name and just only recognizes Reborg is one of those. Reborg was pretty pervasive around it. They were playing a closure posts and some other conference talks and things like that. So I knew the name Reborg from what seems like the early days too, when you're doing your side stuff. And so did finally want to get you on because you got your book and started looking at your book for just, it's a deep dive and we'll get there. But I think if I remember right, 
you also mentioned it came out of your blog post and being pervasive there and getting stuff in. So there was a bit of your name and or your alias, Reborg, was one of the names that I saw making a fair amount of noise about closure and like publishing things on closure and understanding closure for a while. So it again, been a while that I've been looking forward to talk with you. So I guess let's dig in a little bit. You've got the Ruby from Java. Was there any kind of hints that set that foundation there for closure? And I ask because when I did .NET, I looked into Ruby a little bit before .NET got the lambdas and saw things like, oh, there's blocks, not realizing that they're really kind of lambdas that you're passing around, not putting all that stuff together, but saying, hey, file with open and things like this, where you can pass a block and do some of this stuff. I was like, that is nice. Things like database transactions and stuff. As you're in Java and Java was slow to evolve for a number of years because of stability and then the Sun acquisition by Oracle. And I say that as someone who is working in .NET, going back, peeking at Java, because they started out close to parity. And then I was like, .NET went, pushed things a lot further than Java did at that point. Now Java is playing heavy duty catch up and is really progressing now. But when you looked at Ruby, before you started looking at Clojure, what were hints that kind of led you to the Clojure thing? Was there anything in Ruby in that time that kind of set that stage for getting those ideas as you started learning Clojure? I think there was something. As you said, probably like uh, having functions of first objects in a language is definitely helping you thinking in a different way compared to Java at the time where there were there was no lambdas. It means that, you know, in order instead of doing imperative looping with local variables and stuff. Ruby already was doing processing with chains of like you know, sequential processing, similar to what is pervasive in Clojure now. So yes, that was definitely opening my mind in the different directions. And like learning that having this function as first object lambdas, they were also called lambdas in, in Ruby as well, was a big thing. And I think that also, the Ruby community at that point uh, was uh, many in the Ruby community were talking about closure already, like in 2008 and 9. Uh, they were looking at this language emerging from another perspective. And there was already somebody, like at conferences, for example, talking about closure, but I didn't pick up at that point. I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't enough interested. I was still like very much into dissecting object oriented programming from all the possible angles. So I was, you know, studying patterns, studying architectural patterns and applying them all the time. And that was my style of programming. And now I kind of abandoned that. I'm not claiming that I, uh, I completely reject it. It's just that at least for the applications and programming, I need to do closure nowadays. I never feel the need to go back to like thinking in an object-oriented way toward the program or how to model the world in, with, with objects. But I'm, sometimes I, I look back at those books and try to now revisit the same concept with a completely different mindset and see what was good about them. And if I, if I see or if I find something that is a, like a powerful concept, I will probably just apply it again. And, you know, there are things like actors or agents, maybe in closure, that somehow are 
an overlap between what an object is and what uh, like a, an immutable action related to an object receiving an event is. So there are good cross between the two. Maybe actors is, is the answer, like it's a good cross between the two worlds that one could explore. So yes, you know, at the Ruby time, there was something, but I didn't pick up until much, much later on. And I'm kind of regretting that because when I landed on like closure literature, it was already still a niche language, still like uh, very few companies using it, but there was still already a lot of material for me to catch up on. And uh, I just missed all the good vibe uh, at the beginning of Closure in 2008, more or less, when you know people were able to chat freely with Rich about any topic on IRC or in the mailing list. And I missed all of that. So when I arrived, I arrived where it was already impossible for me to interact directly with the creator. And I missed that a little bit. So as you dissect object-oriented and you're looking at these patterns and things like that, were there any things that started setting the other foundation for when Rich Hickey's presentation came across your radar and you watched it that said, oh, I get this. Like, I've already been kind of exposed to this in OO, but this seems a much nicer way to do it. Were there any things that kind of like, besides the pain points of bad OO, were there any good OO things you were doing that like, oh, this is like, this makes the good OO stuff so much easier. So what were some of those things that you found that kind of set the stage as you were digging through and like trying to slice and dice OO as much as you could? Mm-hmm. If, you're, yeah, if you I remember. Think- so one of the first things maybe I, I started doing or trying to do was to see if I had to apply again the same object-oriented patterns I was used to, same you know, strategy patterns or facade or other things that I was used to learn or use at that point. And realizing that when you move to like a dynamically functional language such as Clojure, you don't really need those. You just, or even Ruby sometimes, you just use first-class functions as your way to do polymorphic dispatch, polymorphic behavior most of the time. So most of those patterns, most of the Gang of Four patterns were pretty much useless. And I think I tried uh, at the beginning, I thought there's still dependency injection, although it's not one of the uh, Gang of Four patterns, but as a principle of object orientation, dependency injection was still a good thing to have uh, in a functional language like Clojure. But I abandoned the idea as well because it is useful, but it's not as pervasive as uh, it is in object orientation, where if you don't do that, you're going to have like scalability problems, coupling problems, and, and stuff like that. In Clojure, instead, there is a dependency injection, if you wish, but it's much like weight when you do components in your, in your program, when you want to put your application in a known state, you do a little bit of that dependency injection by having components starting up and coordinating and putting your application in a known state. But from that point onward, is you're not doing dependency injection really in your normal coding. So there's definitely uh, like a cross, a useful cross sometimes of ideas, but is um, yeah, it's deeply orthogonal, like the, the functional approach to programming is is really different from the object-oriented programming style. Did you start applying any of the functional things in the OO at your end of the time in Java that you didn't realize until you look yeah. back, you're like, oh, that was, I was kind of already doing function. And I say this as someone who read Fowler 
read Eric Evans' domain-driven design, where they're like, value objects, immutable things as much as you can, aggregate roots, like, you never change it, don't reach in. It's a nested, like, aggregate roots, you squint, it could kind of be sort of a, it's a deeply nested structure, which enclosure is, you have your top-level map with a bunch of nested maps underneath it. Haskell and other type systems, it's typely, it's strongly typed, but it's still that kind of thing there where you're like, okay, but again, you don't really change it. Then there was some of the other stuff with event sourcing and things like that. Were there any things that you were starting to adopt that you said, oh, I was kind of falling into this trap anyway, and closure <sighs> just makes this so much easier now too? Some things that you mentioned, for example, like immutable objects, like a value object that you don't, you don't touch, those, those kind of things were part of my programming expertise in Java at the point. Expertise in the sense that I knew that in order to avoid certain kind of complications or confusion, you had to create these value objects to move around instead of using domain objects to do the same thing. And that was one of those things, like when you, when you go to closure, you say, all right, I don't need any of these value objects anymore. I just have open maps most of the time. That, that is the kind of data structure you map the same concept on when you move to closure. Your objects becomes open. They becomes just, you know, attribute value pairs that you put in a map. And the map is not constrained. You don't need to, you don't need to declare the map what attributes you want to use over your application. You just, put them in the map, you extend it, you can also change them, you can remove them because the immutability part, the the persistent part of the data structure is going to help you there with concurrency. So you don't need to lock it, you don't need to think about these things. So it's a huge, huge simplification of many things. And this was the big revelation. It it came, you know, it it took maybe two or three years of doing closure full-time to understand that, but this was the big revelation, like... uh, not having that kind of complexity to think about anymore. It's removed, like I can, I think I can hopefully create uh, much more interesting and complicated applications today because I don't need to take all of that in my mind all the time. Like thinking about this object will or not behave in the way I expect because other objects around it are different than what I expect at this point in the program. So all this kind of reasoning was there in during like object-oriented programming and is gone now, most of it. And that is a very useful thing. You see the presentation, you buy the books, you start saying, I want to go full in on closure. And you go and start doing it in your free time. What did that look like? You also started saying the way I wrote closure changed from the books. After we get to the what did that look like, what you were doing in your side time, I kind of want to dig in and set the stage for, you said it changed once you started really writing production code and some of those lessons. So I want to kind of set the stage of what kind of closure were you doing on your side first? And then we'll get into just to give you some, a breadcrumb of where I want to go. So you can think about it in the background of like, how, how did it change once you started doing production? So let's just yeah. start with the, what were you doing on your side time? How you were you investing besides the books and stuff? Yeah, I think that one of the main differences and one of the reasons why at some point, uh, I decided to also write the book. Was that, as a beginner of the language, you know, there was so much in front of me, and I had to make a choice. So I learned how to use map, filter, reduce, the most common functions. And at the end, 
my problem solving was always mapping onto those two or three things that I, I knew at the point. And those are like a restricted vocabulary at the point, but you don't realize it because, of course, you don't know exactly what else is there and, and, until you invest a little bit more time. So the difference, I think, between that first phase was to making a use of closure that was a little bit repetitive. And when you start to constrain vectors into sequences and sequences into vectors, and you don't, do, you don't know why you're doing that, but you are constantly juggling between the two types because sometimes you want to access by index, sometimes closure, it returns you back a sequence. Why it is a sequence again? Let's make it into another vector and so on. So there was a lot of this not knowing exactly why things were presenting themselves in this way in closure. And that was part of, you know, getting the idiom in closure about why things were happening in that way. And with time and practice, what you get to understand is that there are reasons why some closure functions are assuming you're using vectors, others assuming you're using sequences and returning new sequences. And then you start to understand in which way you should set up your program, your algorithm, in such a way that you don't need to think about what data structure am I using now. And you leave the language implementation to think about those details. I think the other change, the other revelation, if you want, is going from like an initial form to a more experienced closure is how to organize larger code bases. You don't know exactly sometimes when, you, when you're starting at the beginning in which way you should decompose a large system and why it should be decomposed in one way or it should be decomposed into another. And where, where are your interface boundaries? What should be private? What should not be private? These kind of things are part of like a more strategic view on a larger application. They normally comes with time and with practice. So that was probably another, another difference between the initial closure and the more evolution of my programming and closure. And to connect back to, to the book, I think at some point I realized that I was restricted in my vocabulary and there was much more things in the standard library that were there and I had no idea why. So I was able to program with a restricted set and the results were not satisfactory, 100%. And there was this huge thing that I could use, but I didn't know why. So I started, I set myself a goal, and that was the, the beginning of the blogging about functions, to pick a random, almost random function per day and just go through it and understand what the function does, why is there, and trying to reach my vocabulary. And that then became a book when I realized that doing this kind of activity was quite fun and rewarding as well. So it's expanding the way you do your programming and you can do different things. So touching on the book, it feels like the old Java in a nutshell, Unix in a nutshell kind of books when I look at it, because it's got everything from the core library with an explanation about it. And like, here's the complete API. Like you can go to the closure API and closure docs and stuff as well and find all that information. But then you also give some background and like nuance and context of it. But it's like the book itself seems Nope, this is the old this is the old O'Reilly nutshell style books that's you you can take this book with you and you can use it as a reference for anything, but also understand everything. When did the blog post start? Was that something pre 
professional stuff and you were doing this and read and you realized you just need to read this and read the closure functions and go look at the source code? Yeah, it was at the beginning, I think, of the profession when I started being curious about what else I was not using that was there and why I was not using and not knowing about it. So that, I think, was more or less at the same time when I was doing closure commercially already. And reading code... I've heard a lot of people say, go look at the closure source code. You want to understand closure? Go look at the closure source code. And I've heard, I don't hear that as much as some of the other languages. And that's probably because it's a Lisp. So you're actually looking at closure in closure as opposed to some of the other languages. It's like, oh yeah, go actually look at the source code of how you don't hear. Go look at the Ruby source code or go look at the JavaScript source code or even as much the Erlang source code or Haskell. Like you may be going in there on some of this stuff. But it's not like you hear it in the closure community. It's usually go look at these libraries for good examples. But with closure, the reading code is one of those skills people don't do. Did you find you actually had that skill when you were first starting to read it? Did it pick up? Or was that just something you started to gradually more and more get better at going and reading some of the stuff because there's some simple closure functions if you go peek at the source. And then there's some really complex, complicated macro-y stuff and other stuff that you get with Lisp as you do it. As you were picking some of these stuff out, were you did you pick like, I'll go pick this function and nope, I'm picking another function because I can't deconstruct that one yet. What was your code reading progress as you started looking at the closure code base? Yeah, it was more or less what you described. But yeah, at the beginning, I was really curious about and I, I went to the to the sources many times, but it was not I mean, it was not understandable for me at that point. It was too much going on there, too much vocabulary, words and idioms that I didn't understand. So I had to roll back a little bit and understand before what I was looking at by looking at how the function works without knowing how it is implemented. And then after a while, I started to look into the closure sources, sometimes for inspiration. For example, if I need, these days, if I need a new way to generate a sequence in closure that it's unlikely, so it's a rare event, but it can happen. I would go remembering, refreshing myself, how do you make closure sequence function that is a good citizen in the closure community, which means it needs to understand laziness, of course. It needs to understand chunkiness sometimes. You know, you have lazy chunked sequences. What happens if you are participating in a in an iteration that requires you to be a chunked sequence? You have chunks and stuff like that. I mean, I, I could probably jot down an idea of the structure of such a function, but I, I probably go there for inspiration every time I need. I also go there... For example, in parts like the implementation of primitive vectors, there's a file called gvec.clj. And there you can see how you can you make your data structure sequential. So to be something that can be added in a chain of sequential processing where you have to implement all of the record functions that are defined in a type, in, in the type of um, a closure sequence. Or you can go there to see if you have to implement a Java iteration, what is the way you reify or you create a proxy or you create, you know, there, there are many of these things that you can see in the wild, but you can definitely see them in the closure source themselves. So that is still a, like a good source of information, but 
it's quite difficult to read, especially, you know, that's a little bit the way every Lisp is designed. So they are homoiconic. They start with a very, they don't need a lot to get going to be something you can evaluate and execute. They just need a few special forms and closure is no exception. There are a few special forms they are defined in Java. You don't see them. If you open the closure sources, you need to open the Java sources. But beyond that, then from those few special forms are 12 or 13 in closure. The top of CoreCLJ, which is the main file where the standard library lives, start to build up everything that you need, including how to define new functions, how to, how to define macros, and all the primitives. And at that point, like at the very top of the file, there's a strange syntax. It's not the same syntax you're used to because Clojure needs to bootstrap itself and arrive to a point where it becomes the closure that you, the end user will see. But before that is a little bit more cryptic. So if you jump at the top, you have a little bit less opportunity to find something readable. If you jump at the very bottom instead of course LJ, you find something that is familiar at least. So you're writing all these blog posts. You've got the idea to turn it into a book as you're trying to go from, I've got map filter reduce group by a couple of others. Okay. I can then put them through a threading macro, do some of this stuff. Again, you can get really far doing that and you can still write pretty nice code. As you start writing these blog posts that you're turning into a book that's now ready to be published almost, mm -hmm. what were some of the big things that you think were hidden gems that are not known that opened the door up? So as you're going through the standard library, it's like, do you do a anonymous function or do you partial this function out and give you a partial function and use the partial instead of anonymous because it makes it more clear. Like there's some things like that that are potentially smaller wins, but then were there any other things that once you expanded your vocabulary of closure that you're like, wow, this is really underutilized, undersold. It may not be used all the time, but it becomes one of those things that is more frequent than rare, but is still not as well known or used mm. as... Let's see, there are definitely examples of that. So one hidden gem, if you want, is that now I use a lot of times when I'm doing map processing is FNIL, FNIL. That is because when you, for example, are creating new nodes in a map, maybe deeply nested, update in, or update in general, and you want to update on something which is a collection on the leaf, when you start, there's no such thing. You know, it's a key that is not existing in the map. So it starts with a nil. But you cannot, like uh, some operation, you cannot conj to a nil. Or if you conj to a nil, it gives you a vector instead of you wanted something else and so on. So fnil is this little useful function that you use to wrap another function that is telling you if you receive a nil as a starting point, as your first argument, then return this thing instead. So that is saving all the conditional that you would need to use instead to say, okay, if when you get this key is non-existent, it is turning you a nil, then give me this data structure. If it's already something, then use my main code. With Fnil, you can do the thing in a, in a much in a concise way. So maybe that's that's a useful. So those are advanced things that when you see in like in in the code in the wild, you see, well, I don't know, maybe this person is trying to impress me with some like a not very well known 
function in the standard library, but I think that is part of the enhanced vocabulary that is making your code at the end of the journey more readable. If you don't know it, which is the case for many people starting with closure or with not too much experience, I think the best attitude would be not to dismiss it as a way to impress somebody else, but to try to understand why it's there. Then, of course, there are exaggeration. You know, the cod golfing is still possible in closure as well. But it's a different kind of thing that I'm trying to describe. Let me think if there is anything else I should mention in this category. The ubiquitous juxt, it's very useful as well. It just cuts like a few inner evaluations of other functions and it reduces a few like very nice use cases into like a very concise code to read. And once you're used to the idiom and see a juxt, you understand why it's there. And so Jax is another of those. So I would say that what I'm mentioning is part of a category of functions that are similar to, but actually I think, I mean, they are part of like maybe a larger literature called combinators. Combinators are not very used in enclosure land, at least not normally. They're coming from, mostly from the scheme school. But there are many of these little functions that Clojure doesn't have that sometimes I would really love to have in the standard library. You, of course, can always define your function, but some of them are so so basic or so pervasive or so important in some use cases that it would be nice to have in, in the standard library. I'll give you an example, maybe to make my point. Every once in a while, so it's not happening constantly, but every once in a while, I'd really love to have a function that takes another function and swap its arguments. So I need to call F with A and B, and what I have somehow is B and A. And I'd really love to have something that I can wrap my function with, and instead of calling A on B, it's calling B, it's, it's using B as a function and calling B using A as an argument. So it's kind of inverting the way you would evaluate that function. So that comes to mind as part of this vocabulary or small functions that are very general. You know, what I'm talking about, like Jux or Fnil, are very general. They're not like specific to a domain. They are specific to the domain of programming. And those are those kind of things that help composing your code, making it smaller, making it more readable. I don't think that, you know, the closure strictly requires more functions than it actually has, but these are a few examples that comes to mind, and a few already are in the standard library, so don't worry about that. You're going deep into closure. You mentioned Scheme for the combinators. Are there any other resources that you started picking up to understand closure better? Was there any list background or stuff that you looked at and said, oh, because of the lineage of a Lisp? that you've gone back and looked at and picked up in goals of being a better functional programmer, keeping things more pure, figuring out the lineage of Lisp, et cetera, that you folded in as well. One thing probably to say is that most of this was in retrospective. So my my learning of functional programming went through closure and then understanding that closure was a Lisp and then understanding what does it mean to be a Lisp came as a second part of my career, which now, you know, is one of the reasons why I have still so many things I want to learn, many things I want to understand, is going back to 
where closure comes from and understand why a few things are the way they are. And this, for example, concept of combinators or actors, how the actor model was originally envisioned, that now it's part of closure in a way with agents. Maybe that's the closest I can think of. This all came later on. So, and I, I wouldn't, it would be difficult for me to suggest to somebody who is learning the language to like put these kind of things already in their learning material, unless, you know, of course they are interested and they want to do it. Just because there is already a lot to understand, especially if you're coming from an object-oriented mindset. The paradigm shift is already keeping you busy. The change in IDE and tooling is probably keeping you busy. So going there and also trying to understand other concepts beyond what Clojure is providing you at the moment is probably a little bit overwhelming to begin with. So in my case, I naturally arrived at like learning about Scheme and what other languages in the Lisp family are doing later on. And that is now like a huge source of research information and deep concepts, powerful ideas that I'm always like, I'm, I'm just scratching the surface, but I'm always looking into those and trying to see why they're powerful, why they're not in closure. Continuations is one of them. Why, why there is an entire school of people bragging about or highlighting how powerful continuations are and we are not using them. And you can definitely say that the JVM does not support them. And yes, and that's a good starting point. This is not idiomatic. So what kind of concepts continuations bring in your daily programming? And if, you know, the next JDK will have continuations, and that is, I think, about to be the case because uh, I don't remember what the, the project name is, but yeah, I'll try to remember that, or maybe you, you'll, you'll remember me. Continuations might arrive in, in, in the JDK. So when they arrive, do we want to use them and how? Will it be easy to interface from Clojure? Do we need to change Clojure for that? But I mean, knowing already why they're powerful and which way you can use them, it's something that you can do already by looking at like another list, like Scheme, which is extremely readable if you have a fluency with Clojure. So there are all sorts of things that I'd like to explore more. And yeah, I, I could go on probably. What were some of the biggest takeaways now that you're close to the end of the book? We talked about the FNL and the Jux or some of these things that are these hidden gems in there. But you go into things like Core Async and a bunch of these other libraries that are not part of Core, but essentially come with closure like Spec and Core Async where, yes, they're right along. You don't get them out of the box. They are not in the core namespace, but they are right there next to it. Were there any other kind of hidden gems that as you were going through this whole bundle of closure that was kind of a, I kind of knew of this. Some of this may be transducers is the concept is there. If you aren't familiar with some of the type theories of the fact that uh, there are it's a functor, which means you can actually apply them and go through the sequence once because they compose and not go through the sequence 15 times. If you're doing 15 map operations or things like that, you can go through it once and compose it. Were there any other kind of realizations that you had as you're digging through and saying, oh, people talk about this a little bit, but it doesn't like come across as the full power 
of what is really there once you really understand some of these topics? Yeah, I think one of those things in that category could be the SDM, but specifically REFs. So when Clojure started, at the very beginning, there was a lot of emphasis on software transactional memory, which STM stands for. And Clojure came on the scene, like on the spotlight in those days with that idea very prominent in mind. And then it faded out for many, several reasons. Maybe still myself, even knowing a little bit better after writing the book about what this is all about and how it was implemented. I still couldn't find like a, you know, a strong use case for use DSTM, specifically transactions in closure, in memory enclosure. But like in writing the book, I had to dissect the topic and that made me realize how deep the implementation, how thought out the implementation of that part of closure is. And it's just a shame that I'm still unable to find a use case to use it because I would really love to use that. It's so sophisticated. It contains so many knobs and configuration to do like a concurrency in a very straightforward way, if you want. It still requires some learning curve, but nothing compared to having to implement your own locking primitives or concurrency primitives from scratch. So it's much, it's higher level. And yeah, that contains a lot of interesting things that unfortunately as closure developers, we don't get to use that much, except for the ant example. I'm kind of chuckling in the background. The fact that they've got this such nice concurrency primitive that they've written that's so beautiful and so well done, but the rest of the language has done so well with immutability, you never need the mutability for 99% of your use cases. So you never take advantage of it because the immutability case solves most of those problems that you never have to touch it. It, yeah. it takes care of the immutability so well, you never have to touch the immutable part except in rare occasions. But when you have to touch it, it's good It's good to know that it's really solid and really well done. Yeah. And yeah, you know, we constantly use atoms. Sometimes I use agents for this. And we all use VARs, you know, like the, the definition of a VAR enclosure is also concurrency construct. Sometimes we do an altered VAR root although it's an exception. But when you do that, you're still making access to the same concurrency primitives and the same STM. It's just that your transaction, there's only one operation in your transaction. You never get to coordinate between multiple, maybe in a normal program. But, you know, closure internally does in a few places. And uh, so maybe, you know, it's, it's already enough. I mean, the fact that the STM is there with that kind of sophistication essentially gave birth to all the other constructs that we normally use in in daily life, especially atoms. They came slightly later because I think Rich and the core team realized that of all the concurrency constraints, transactions with a single action was the most common and the atom was born for that. So you just swap in it, you reset stuff in it, and you're done. And that covers a lot of ground. And yes, at the end of the journey, we don't get to use the STM as we thought. And I mean, it's not just closure. Though there was a lot of hype on the STM. It went into Haskell big time. I'm not sure they're using it there too. So it's just the way it is at the moment. Maybe one day we'll find like a strong use case for that. Is there anything about the book we haven't covered that you want to raise, make known, 
before we talk into some of the other stuff that you're doing? Yeah, maybe um, just worth mentioning that, yeah, the, the book is, is now finished. It's content complete. Despite being based on Closure 1.8, it that takes you to the 95% coverage of everything that you need to know. Of course, there are important things in 1.9, 1.10, and so on, but they are a minority and they are special in one way or another. So unless there are like a huge breakthrough coming with 1.11, but I, I didn't see them. Maybe in Closure 2, there will be a need to be a little bit more proactive with the book and cover whatever Closure 2 means at that point. Just to say that it's an important book to have on your bookshelf as a reference book. You don't read it cover to cover. But if you are like attacking closure, you're already like uh, fluent with some of the basics and you already going through closure, the brave of true or uh, closure programming, then having this as a second book to, you know, dig deeper in one's lives vertically into one topic in a specific aspect. I think it's a good, it's a good resource. Before the book came out, or actually even at this point, there are not many sources that are aggregating the same information you find in the book in a single place. You have to go a little bit on Stack Overflow. You need to go on the mailing list. Or you need to go on the archive, Slack archive, to, to search for things. So there's not like a, you know, a single authoritative place where you can find all of these things in one place. So my hope with this book was to create such kind of uh, central point for like deep going deeper into some of the construction closure. Yeah, I was really appreciating it and I was starting to do it cover to cover, but more of the, probably in the way that you were writing it of like, take a couple functions a day and just look at a couple functions a day and just make sure you kind of like, let's look at this function. Let's understand what some of this stuff does for the nuance and read it cover to cover, but also use it as a reference just to make sure you're like, you pick out one of those functions that you may have never looked at, like, oh, juxt. Okay. As you said, juxt. You're like, if you just use it as a reference, you're never going to necessarily come across juxt, but taking it cover to cover as well slowly just to look at a function, like make sure you hit the new functions that you never hit is something else too that I was appreciating as well. Just to say, this is just a way for me to understand a good core library. And then steal that for whatever language I may be working in. If I go work in Haskell or if I go work in Erlang, what is the equivalent of this concept? Because is there an equivalent for Juxt? That is a nice thing. Is there the swap function that swaps the arguments, as you mentioned, and those things of just knowing that these things are out there in general. So I would recommend doing a slow cover-to-cover read as well, just to make sure that if you're going to pick it up, you don't lose out on any of those hidden gems or find something that could be useful to you because, oh, now I understand the nuance of this, or I understand the nuance of map now that Clojure has because it turns into a transducer. It does some other stuff. It does some other stuff. And there's a bunch of variations on this, depending on which area you give and how you construct it. So now that we've wrapped up the book, You've got a bunch of other stuff going on. I know you're blogging things about like iterators and the new Closure 111 features. I think you've done some transducer stuff. So you're still blogging. You're still doing stuff. You have the reclosure that happened in December that you put on for at least a second year. I want to say that it's even more than just the two years. What other stuff do you have going on that you would like to discuss and let people know about and just 
Talk, let's talk about that as well. Yeah. So in terms of like things are coming up in, in a short, like in the short term, there's nothing. If I get involved again in reclosure, which is a possibility, but I, you know, I can't commit now 100% at least. It will be at the end of the year. Normally, that's what it is. Other things that I'm working on are a few of the projects of GitHub. I'd like to go back on, on some point on a library that I wrote. It's called Parallel. It's a re-implementation of the most important functions in the standard library to work in parallel by default. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm using it myself in a few places. I think it might it might be more useful as a library if there is a more there is a, like a stronger contract about the way parallelism is going to work. You need to know now still a lot of things to understand if you know, can I drop in this function and just use the one from parallel and be sure that everything is going to be perfect? No, you can't. Unfortunately, you know you have to measure. You have to understand what you're doing. You have to understand if the multi-threading is going to hit you in the negatives instead of the positives. So a little bit of what happens in the standard library itself. So it's an interesting and challenging project, but I think to be successful, it will need to be more proactive in giving you the option of just replace the function you're using with something from the library and just be sure that it's going to improve your performance. So how can you achieve that is probably like a difficult problem, but I was thinking in terms of how can I make those functions learn from their surrounding environments? What is the best strategy? So can I add some strategy to those functions so they understand in which way they should operate given the first part of the input? Can I infer what kind of strategy should I use for this collection, for this group of operation I need to use? So I guess it goes in the direction of measuring what's happening, sampling, if you wish, and then take different strategies, take, take in different directions. That could be something interesting. In a dumb metaphor that probably oversimplifies it too much, is that something like the Java hash maps where it's like, oh, we're just going to use an array and treat this because it's less than 10 items. And so we'll just use an array versus actually go with a giant hash map because you can figure out based off the size of there are 10 items. It's not worth parallelizing 10 items because this thing is sequenced. It's countable. I can determine if it's based off 10, no way to parallelize it. If it's a million items, then yes, definitely parallelize this versus doing a sequential thing. To use a bad, dumb metaphor, is it that kind of stuff that you're talking about trying to make smart and take advantage of? Yeah, yeah, I think that some of those things are already in for some of the functions where, you know, it's very clear when they're going to work, when they're not going to work. Other things I think are more sophisticated, looking at how many cores you have available and how many items you have to process and what the processing is doing, so how much effort the processing is doing. All these variables should be part of the equation when you decide, which is the kind of reasoning you do like on, on a napkin when you're starting understanding if you can parallelize some kind of code. You need to do all this kind of reasoning. So I'm, I'm wondering if there is a way to incorporate that into the library. And if there is a way, is it going to work? I'm not sure 100%. So that, that is one thing that I'd like to, at some point, keep working. I have other ideas. so. 
but yeah, can promise anything. But since I'm reading a lot of papers lately, one thing that I'm missing that I don't know if there is, but I couldn't find one, is something like Audible, but for papers. So I can go on Audible, I can have somebody read a book for me, and I'm using this a lot along with normal reading because sometimes I'm not able to keep something in front of my eyes all the time and I'm doing something else and it's good to like listen to a podcast or listen to a book. It's very useful. I find it very relaxing as well. So I don't have anything for papers, but there are a lot of papers and all, all of them are important. So you can claim, yeah, there are many with formulas and stuff. Yes, yeah, so also with books, it's the same. So it wouldn't work if you, for all kinds of papers, but definitely for the big computer science classic will definitely work. Like out of the tar pit, definitely somebody can read it for you and make a good work to cite one. And so I'm, I'm wondering if I can, if I, if I can produce some of that, like recording myself while I read it. So I force myself to read it. I force, force myself to understand it and pronounce it correctly as well. My accent will be probably distracting, but if nobody else is doing it, somebody has to. And if you have to get the weird guy with the strange accent reading the paper for you, then you're going to get him. So I'm okay in doing that. So that, that's something I'd really love to do. And I started a little bit of trial of that, understanding how much work it is, how much effort, because I need to weigh that against the rest of my life. It's going to take some time, right? I was about to say, sounds like the start of just trying to get some of the audio of the papers we love recordings and just start with some of those I guess, YouTube videos that they published from their meetings and see if you could get audio-only formats of that. Yeah, no, that is already possible, essentially. You, you just put the, the, the video in, in the background and, and you can listen to that. The problem is those, like, those presentations are amazing. They are not reading the, the, the paper out loud. So it's an interpretation sometimes. So let's touch on reclosure just for the past, even if... You said you can't commit to another one necessarily at this point, but any big takeaways from previous reclosures that you've helped put on that you think people should go check out? Any highlights or videos or things that you would call out specifically other than just like, go check out the back recordings of reclosure? Is there any other ones that come to mind for a functional programming audience? Of course. So I don't know if that was made clear probably many knows about it, but we have a podcast series that went ahead before the conference, doing a little bit of the interviews that you're doing on Functional Geekery, but with the speakers at the conference. So, you know, sometimes the kind of questions where we tried to make the same kind of questions to every guest with the specific goal to make their talk more relevant when uh, the talk was at the conference. I don't know if like everyone in, in the audience knows, but you can go and, and get some very interesting interviews there with our guests. I mean, the, the same people who then gave the talk at the conference, but we are talking about, not actually, we are not talking about their talk at all. We are talking about their experience with the civic technology in life in general. So it's a different kind of content. You can find it on Anchor FM. If you search on, on Anchor FM for... Closurians podcast, you'll see those interviews. So you can go there and have a look. So that is one thing that I think, I'm not sure how helpful it was, but it was definitely fun for us to do. I mean, it was fun for me to do. 
I got to know the speakers. I got to talk with them. A lot of learning in that. And I also was able to interview and, and chat with our keynoters, Stephen Wolfram. That was uh, kind of an amazing discovery for me. And talking with Jerry Sassman as well was an amazing night well spent. So I'm, I feel lucky that I could, I could like invite somebody like that to talk with me and make maybe, unfortunately, some dumb question. But I got to learn a lot. Definitely, I got to learn a lot. And I don't know if that was helpful for who attended the conference, but I may suggest that that could be like a course of action for other conference. Personally, I would definitely listen to those if another conference decided to make them. In terms of, um, you know, other suggestions for making a better conference. So going virtual with a conference had a lot of positives. People connecting from all over the world, larger audiences, and the fact that you could stay in your house following it and uh, like not being exposed to dangerous viruses and stuff like that was definitely a positive. On the negatives, we are all deeply, deeply missing now the conference hall track, going and joining people in person and spontaneous conversations that are very difficult to recreate in a virtual environment. So there are tools, we try them, they kind of work, but they are not. They don't scale the way they should in order to have something that is similar to a live conversation. There's, as far as I know, there's nothing going close to that that I can suggest to use. So that is what I'm deeply missing about the live conference. And this year, they are starting to come back. So the next challenge, I think, for a conference, and there's already, I think, what's the name of it? One conference doing this is going both virtual and physical at the same time. So it becomes a live show, so to speak. And it's got technical challenges to make it happen. But I think that could be like a good future for conferences. It would give like the best of both worlds, I guess. You can stay home if you like. If you can come, if you can, if you want to come, you can come and have the live conversation in the hallway and like join for a beer. So if I have to envision, like if I have to suggest or if I have to hope for a different world in conferences, I would hope that they, that they are like that, like both physicals and virtual in the future. Is Lambda Conf going? Both of them, I think. LambdaConf does a dual track. The ElixirConf is doing a dual track. All those are backed by the uh, Erlang Solutions and CodeBeam stuff. So I I can potentially see the CodeMesh doing the same thing over in London as well, depending on how things play out. Though mm -hmm. that one usually runs in November. So maybe every time I think we see an opening of stuff, there's another spike of another variant. So at this point, sure. I'm like, I'm waiting for this. I'm waiting for the shoe to drop again. But maybe by the time November rolls around, we'll see what they do with Code Mesh. But uh, yeah, Lambda Days and ElixirConf EU are both postponed some from their original dates, and they're staying hybrid track. So yeah, hmm. it'll be interesting to see if that if that's something that's going to stick around as well. Yeah, true. Is there anything else that you want to mention that you're working on? Anything in interesting in the day job that you're finding? You mentioned your parallel project. Any other stuff that's kind of just interesting that you think should be brought up? Let's see. I briefly mentioned a few things. I'm, I'm looking into some powerful 
ideas with continuations. Tower of Interpreters is something that I'm looking at. Stratify Design is very interesting. I don't know what it will, if anything will come out of, out of that. Sometimes they, there's, I hope there will be like an interesting project that is useful and practical. And yeah, I think in terms of interesting things that are coming up for me, I've, I've pretty much covered covered them all. Pretty sure that after the call, I'll definitely remember something I should have mentioned and I didn't. But yeah, no, not at the moment. I just wanted to make sure that we talked about personal projects. I wasn't sure if there was any other exciting stuff that you're like, oh, we're getting to pick up something as part of the day job and we're digging deep into this and like, there's something really exciting there with a library or something that you wanted to, that was exciting you as well, because I know you blogged about the new iterators features on the Jux blog. I think it was the iterators that's in closure 111. Yes. Iterator. Yes. That's the name of the function. I wasn't sure if there was any other kind of stuff that just you were seeing that was like, Hey, this is, didn't make it to the book. This is still neat. It's it's even maybe not closure core. It's just a second library that has got you looking at something exciting too. So just wanted to see if there was anything else there. No. And looking a little bit more into database implementation as well. That's probably related to my work at Jax as well. But I think there is still still room for something interesting and revolutionary in the way we make access to data and we do programming in a more declarative way. So I think where I'm going at with this is that I kind of worked with rule engines in my previous job. And now that I look at the implementation of databases, I realized that you know relational algebra and logic and programming, things like Prolog are very close to each other and they're not far away at all. And, you know, with Datalog, we kind of get a sense of that. So I'm still thinking if we can like bring this kind of concepts back again into programming with something which is not necessarily Prolog, but is close to logic. And how can we essentially collapse database querying and programming in the same environment? So these are like uh, expert systems from the 80s, right? We're not talking about something new and they failed. But I'm wondering if 30 years after or 40, now there's room for something new in that area. We have more powerful things. We have more powerful techniques, interesting algorithms to, you know, doing unification, doing backtracking and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'll just keep an eye on that uh, along with uh, too many other things. Sounds great be looking forward to just whatever you spit out because it's always interesting whether I'm working in closure or another language or just even something as JavaScript, just to the beauty of this podcast and what the appeal about closure in the early days and still does is still the great ideas from anywhere. If it's a good idea, we'll figure out how to make it work with the language that we're doing. Yeah. going to be following you keeping along. Where can people follow you if they've never heard of you, never encountered you? What's the best place for people to follow along? Because they're they're curious to what's going on now and looking at some of this stuff. Where can people track you down and keep up to date? Yeah, I think the most up to date is GitHub. In terms of ideas, I will post things there. And Twitter is like the more personal, sociable way to get in touch. My website, Reebok.net, at the moment is not getting... A lot of updates 
but it might be in the future. So these three places, I think. But in general, at Reborg, yeah, is is taking you in most of the places where you need to know about my work. I'll get those links added to the show notes. Is there anything else that we missed? Is there any other call to action you want to make? I know we've covered a lot. Anything else you want to mention before we go? No, but I just want to maybe mention and thank you again for your podcast. As I was like chatting with you at the at the beginning, I I went back to the episodes. There's a lot there that I forgot, maybe I missed, and there's a lot of material. And this kind of interview format is for me one of the best ways to learn about what people are up to, what they're thinking about, and like learning new things in general. So thanks, Steve, for for your hard work all these years, and keep going, please. <laughs> well, thank you. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Renzo, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Been following along for a number of years. I think we both started peeking around Closure at the first time. You got into it deeper than I did, earlier than I did. But it's been a pleasure following you and finally getting to chat with you and put a face to the name. Other than this presentations of watching the London user group or the couple of the back videos of reclosure, but thanks for actually taking your time to talk to me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thank you very much, Steve. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.